In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee, and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. About five years ago, I got the chance to travel to London for the very first time. Like many Episcopalians, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, so to say I relished the trip would be an understatement. Yet this time around, I was only going to be in the UK just a few days, which meant I had to be choosy about those things I was definitely going to see, and those I would have to leave for another time. But because I'm a self-avowed church nerd, I've said this before, there was no question that a visit to Westminster Abbey for Evensong would be top of list. In fact, I went the first evening I could. If you've ever been to the Abbey, then you already know what a truly remarkable space it is, breathtaking in every respect. But of course, part of what makes it so significant is the way it bridges the secular and the divine, like no other site you can likely think of. It is a church, certainly, and yet it is also a kind of Valhalla, a great hall, a place of honor and glory where the heroes of a nation are ultimately received. But it's a fickle thing, fame, because it is so often fleeting. And actually, I think Westminster Abbey tutors that lesson better than most. Now, there are definitely, definitely plenty of memorials to plenty of people you recognize as you walk around. Poets, prime ministers, even our own Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And there are obviously kings and queens. But as I heard one guide note, there are also ample monuments to individuals most people have never heard of, whom time did not remember so well. And surprise, surprise, they're usually the most ostentatious. Yet for all the famous people buried and memorialized within those walls and under those floors, my favorite fact about the Abbey is that there is only one grave, one tomb, in the entire church that the public is not permitted to walk on. And it isn't for a poet, or a prime minister, or even a monarch. Laid to rest on November 11th, 1920, after six black horses drew the coffin on a gun carriage, the remains of an unknown warrior lie beneath a slab of thick black marble that is one of the first tombs to greet you when you walk through the abbey's doors. Almost always surrounded by a perimeter of bright red poppies, beneath the slab there is the grave of a life that was lost during the horrors of the First World War. 
The idea for the tomb was first conceived by a chaplain at the front, and history tells us that on the morning of the burial, the bearer party journeyed crowd-lined streets before then being met by King George V. It's recorded that he placed a wreath of roses and bay leaves on the coffin and a card that read, in proud memory of those warriors who died unknown in the Great War, unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold they live. A few brief words that speak to profound truths, that no one leaves this world apart from a web of connections, family, loved ones that ache to see it go, and that no life, no story ever goes unknown to God, whether it belongs to a king or a queen, whether it belongs to you or me. Yes, come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. If you haven't guessed already, today is what's known in the church as Christ the King Sunday. It's a kind of peculiar observance that always falls on the last Sunday of the liturgical year. And I say peculiar because it takes a little unpacking to get at the true meaning of the day and why we even mark it as an observance in the first place. When it comes to churchy things, when it comes to our feast days and rituals and practices, it's easy to just assume that we do things a certain way and at certain times because we always have, or at least we have for a very long time. But the thing about Christ the King is, this feast day, is that we actually haven't always done it. The thing is, it's actually, at least as far as church things go, pretty new, a relatively recent phenomenon, brought into existence a little after the First World War and later adopted by other liturgical churches, Anglicans included, Pope Pius XI instituted the Feast of Christ the King in 1925 to remind Christians that the only king who truly deserves our fidelity and utmost admiration is Christ. Curious timing then, huh? Or is it? Well, it is widely believed that Pius XI made this move when he did because he feared deeply that other kings were proving more successful than Jesus at capturing the hearts and minds of the people of Italy, Europe, and really people all around the world at this time. It's an awful thing, but it's an awful thing that we, humanity, seem to keep doing. We pick the wrong kings, and we have a bad habit of following them to the very corners of our worst impulses. Which is why today is Christ the King Sunday. Which is why today we take the time to reorient ourselves purposely, with great intention, towards a different way of being in this world. 
and a hope whose mantle no temporal leader can bear. But what is that way of being in this world? What image of kingship does God give us? In the psalm appointed for today, Psalm 95, the psalmist tells us that the Lord God is our maker and that we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And just beyond the portion appointed for today, the psalm continues saying, Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Or to put it another way, Oh, that today you would recognize whose sheep you are, whose sheep you really are. Oh, that today you would know your true shepherd and king, as he never fails to know and love and pastor and care for each and every one of us. But the shepherd imagery doesn't stop there. No, it continues in our lesson from the prophet Ezekiel 2. Though we only get two handfuls of verses to work with here, the reason we read them at all is because the entire chapter they are situated in is primarily concerned with leadership, bad leadership, no less. Yes, it's primarily concerned with what happens when humanity picks the wrong kind of king. Which is why, which is why here in these verses, God makes a point, a powerful point, to condemn the rulers, the supposed shepherds and leaders of Israel who have led them astray. He condemns because these leaders have not truly led. He condemns because they allowed their sheep to become prey. And he condemns because the sheep have not been fed as they should, because they've been starved by a kind of selfish leadership that was never about the people it claimed to protect. And it is into this mess, into this calamity, where the weak and the defenseless have been left to the beasts of a harsh, fearful wilderness that God ultimately vows to step in, that God vows to become Israel's shepherd, the only shepherd who can deliver for them in their hour of need. Yes, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them with justice. Yes, I will feed them with justice. It's a great gift, this promise, but I have to wonder, is justice, this promise of justice, not also an invitation? Can it not be both a hope cast to buoy our spirits and a summons and a call to join in with God and God's redeeming work? For all this talk of shepherds, I think it's fitting that in Jeremiah, God not only promises to be a shepherd, but to give us shepherds. Shepherds who are after the Lord's own heart, who will feed with knowledge and understanding. And if that's the case, what then does it mean to be such a shepherd, to feed the world in the ways God also feeds? And furthermore, furthermore, is there a middle ground, I wonder, that can be inhabited somewhere in between challenging unjust kings and seeking paths of peace, lasting peace? Thinking on that last question, I'm reminded of a story 
from President Dwight D. Eisenhower's first term in office. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Western Europe during World War II, and then later as President, I think it's safe to say that Eisenhower knew war, knew what it meant, knew its pain and significance. And I think it's also safe to say that he knew the cost of extraordinary power finding its way into the wrong hands. And further, I think it is because Eisenhower knew war so well and went toe-to-toe -to -toe with kings who waged war so recklessly that he also, as a consequence, deeply, deeply believed in the cause of peace. Not in some naive way, and certainly not as someone who could be accused of lacking experience, but as someone with hard-fought clarity about just why it is so important that the cause of peace never ever be lost. Speaking to that story, it is said that in the days leading up to his Cross of Iron speech, Eisenhower looked out a window in the Oval Office just as an F-86 Sabra fighter craft flew overhead. The president was apparently in a gloomy mood about the direction of the speech when suddenly and sharply he broke that mood, turned to one of his aides and dictated. Here is what I would like to say. That jet plane that roars over your head costs three quarters of a million dollars. That is more money than a man earning $10,000 every year is going to make in his lifetime. What world can afford this sort of thing for long? Where will it lead us? At worst to atomic warfare, at best to robbing every people and nation on earth of the fruits of their own toil. In short, it was a moment that broke the logjam on what needed to be said, and it is that sentiment that then evolved into the quote that Eisenhower is now probably best known for, namely the one that says that every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the clouds of war, it is humanity hanging on a cross of iron. Or to get at this point in another way, here's a question from today's gospel that may now seem especially poignant. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? It could certainly be argued, one might say, that the answer may very well be in that quote that this world in arms is not spending money alone. Returning to a little earlier, I noted that Christ the King Sunday is a kind of peculiar observance. It takes a little unpacking to get at the weight of its meaning, and it requires a little history 
to understand why we even celebrate it in the first place. But what was true in Ezekiel's time, in Pius XI's time, and throughout much of the 20th century is unfortunately still true today. You need only turn on the news to once again see war raging in Europe, authoritarianism on the rise, and the wrong kinds of kings capturing hearts and minds so that they can spend the sweat of the world's laborers, the genius of its scientists, and the hopes of its children on their own selfish and short-sighted gains. Yet even so, even so, there is ample reason not to despair. Because all the time we can see and know and believe that the Lord has sent shepherds into the world after God's own heart. People who know the cost of following the wrong kinds of kings and who won't be satisfied until all people are returned to the dignity in which they were made by their creator. And what's more, what's more is we should never lose hope. We should never lose a wide-eyed anticipation of a world made new, a world as it ought to be, because there is every reason to believe that this God will never stop shepherding us and calling new shepherds to be his own. Because at the center of it all is a promise, a promise that the Lord has already made good on, that the dead things of this world will never win, that a day of concord will indeed rise, and that when it does rise, it will rise under the banner of the Prince of Peace, whose every grief have known, who bore the cross and grave, who wore the crown of thorns, and whose wondrous wondrous name is love. So come then, come, let us bow down and bend the knee. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Oh, that today we would hearken to His voice. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.